All right, welcome back to Firewall. My guest today is Michael Eisenberg. Listeners of, of Firewall know Michael, both because we did a guest series together in Israel a couple of years ago. He's been on the show a couple of times um, and is someone that is both a friend and that I work with very closely. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Bradley, great to be here with you. Um, I will say one thing, by the way, at the start, if for whatever reason there is a siren in the middle of the uh, show, I'm going to have to get up and walk out calmly and down the block into a shelter. Understood. We're, we're, we're okay with that. Um, you are, uh, for listeners who, who don't know, the co-founder and general partner at Aleph, which is, I believe, Israel's premier venture capital fund. You and I have worked together quite a bit uh, and become friends coming out of that. And asked you to come on just because I, I thought that sharing your perspective with our listeners would be you know, incredibly useful. So this is kind of a broad question, but like, how are you? How are we? Um, you know, as Mayor Adams said, we're not fine. Um, no one can be fine uh, after seeing the, the brutal attacks committed by, by Hamas uh, on the people. I've, I've had the misfortune of having watched uh, many videos at this point. I've had to for, for some work I've done together with the government and, and others. And uh, these are scenes you can't, you can't ever forget. Uh, I've seen the beheadings myself, um, videos of them, uh, bloody children, um, and subhuman behavior by by Hamas that that is not forgettable. And you know we said never again after the Holocaust, and and, and this is never again. Uh, and so, how are we? Uh, we're not fine, but at the same time, Israel is incredibly resilient, and so everybody is galvanized. But I mean everybody. Uh, the civilian effort here is stunning. People are optimistic. We're looking forward. Um, we're saying, how do we build Israel better going forward? How do we fix this problem? Um, and candidly, I think there's there's an emerging view and understanding in, in the West that it's not just Israel's problem. You know, the the it was a terrorist in in Brussels last night uh, who killed a few people, a Swedish soccer fans, and we've seen the outrageous behavior on college campuses and in Times Square and, and in London. Um, and on the and the steps of the Sydney Opera House yelling gas the Jews. Um, and so, you know, people of the West and Douglas Murray and Sam Harris have have said this also, you know, this is a big wake up call. It's a wake up call for the for college campuses. It's a wake up call for politicians. It's a wake up call for for civilians, it's a wake up call for for people who believe in human life and freedom and who cherish human life. And so I guess we feel we're at the front lines of that and we're resilient and we'll get after it. Now, I'll just tell you one quick story from yeah, yesterday, please. by the way, just because it's important. Um, I went to go see uh, the people of Kfar Aza yesterday. As you know, some of the worst atrocities took place in Kfar Aza, which is a little border village. Um, and many people were massacred there. And there's a lot of kidnappees, you know, people, hostages that were taken by Hamas uh, from that village. And the people were cleaned out and taken to a hotel just north of Tel Aviv in a place called Shvaim. And uh, I walked in there. They wanted to show me around, see if I could help out to try to bring some technology to help scale it up and a few other things, you know, run the operation better. I walk in, there's a guy driving a golf cart. And the person taking me around says, hey, this is Ido. And I said, hi, Ido, you have a family? He says, no, I'm only 22, 23. I said, you're not in the Army? He says, I was just released. And I said, they didn't call you back up uh, for reserve duty? He said, no, they decided I'd probably be better off being with my community here. You know, we lost so many people and they need young people to run this place. I said to him, well, you know, it's it's incredible that you're alive. I said, unfortunately, I lost my cousin in the battle in Faraza. He looks at me and says, Duvdivan, which is one of the commando units. I said, yes. He said, that's who saved my life. 
please take a picture with me and send it to your cousins and tell them thank you for me. And tell them also that we are going to rebuild everything and we're going to rebuild it better and the people live on and we're going to build just an incredible amount of stuff in his memory and his name and because of his bravery. And that was just a stunning story for me. I think it encapsulates a lot. And your, your kids, uh, at least some of them are in the military right now, is, is right? I have one kid who's who's in active duty, and then I have uh, uh, two sons who've been called up for reserve duty. Uh, one was in a command, what used to be in a commando force, and uh, and uh, a son-in-law also who was called up for reserve duty. Uh, three of them on the Gaza, uh, you know, around the Gaza borders, and and then another one who uh, does his duty in Central Command, and he's there, on and off. So, how is it sort of affecting you, and the the kind of contrast between, you know obviously firmly believing that Israel needs to do whatever it needs to do to protect itself and be safe, but also your kids are literally in, on the front lines in harm's way. How are you thinking about it? It's a good question. It's a legitimate question. You know, my grandfather uh, was taken to the U.S. Navy in World War II, and he became an officer, and he saw a huge amount of action. Uh, he spent three years almost in the Pacific and didn't see my grandmother for three years. And I, I was very close with him. By the way, his namesake is in the Israeli army right now uh, on the Gaza border. And I often asked him about this. And he said, could you imagine had there not been the United States of America in the 1940s that was willing to go to war for the values of the free world, that was willing to go to war against the, at the time, Japanese and German killing machines and the atrocities that that, that had been committed by by these people at the time. And... Uh, you know, side note, I, I once asked him how he felt about Truman's decision to drop the nuclear bomb. And he said, I was privy to the intelligence information of how many people would be killed in a ground invasion. How, what did I feel when they dropped the nuclear bomb? I was ecstatic because I knew we'd lose a million American troops if we didn't. And I was like shocked. I was a kid. It shocked me when he said that. But I kind of get it. There is unfettered evil in this world that must be stopped. And what Israel went through is like Pearl Harbor. Uh, right now. And, uh, and so how do I feel? I feel very proud that my kids all jumped at the opportunity to do this. Obviously, as a parent, you're worried about your kids, but Israel's one big family. You know, I'll give you another stunning stat. My, my grandmother, who just passed away seven months ago, has about 30 descendants who are called up on the front lines. Okay, I have friends with multiple children there. Um, I mentioned that my cousin was killed in battle on the first day. And what the West has, has lacked for a long time is the resolve to beat back evil, to say that this is not okay, to say that moral equivalence making its way around college campus and this stupid identity politics and a million other things just doesn't matter. What matters is calling evil what it is and getting rid of it so that people who love life, people who want prosperity, people who love innovation can go make the world a better place. And we can make it a better place so long as we have animals running around slaughtering babies beheading people, torturing bodies, 80, catch this, 80% of the bodies of the people murdered by Hamas were tortured and mutilated, 80%. The handbook of these guys was to torture and mutilate people and rape them. These are baby killers and rapists. You wouldn't want them not only in Gaza, you wouldn't want them anywhere in the world. And if we don't take care of it, they rear their other head every time it happens. And so how do I feel? You know, every parent's concerned. And at the same time, I'm so proud of them. And I'm so proud of all of our kids here. Um, you know, it's 400,000 people called up. 
left their wives. By the way, amazing wives. You know, there's some wives, by the way, in reserve duty. One of my best friends has his son uh, is in an infantry unit, and his son's wife is is an Air Force operator. They're both in reserve duty. And so, you know, I just say, wow, how fortunate are we to have such idealistic kids? Um, And yeah, you're concerned as a parent, obviously. So you grew up here in Manhattan, um, and while you've lived in Israel for a while, you have family here. You're still a New Yorker in many ways, too. You're sadly a Yankees Thank fan, you. not a Mets fan, but uh, nonetheless, we'll, we'll, we'll forgive you. Um, so when, you know, as soon as it happens, there's there's a rally in Times Square where swastikas are displayed. Um, the DSA, which, you know, claims to be a legitimate political party, is is actively supporting this. How did that make you feel? And does it surprise you? Is that the New York and the America you grew up in? Or do you think things have changed here quite a bit since you left? So I'll say a few things. First of all, I think Mayor Adams' speech was incredible. It was a speech of leadership. It was a speech of what I call the forces of good against the forces of evil. And he correctly identified it. Uh, you know, many Jewish leaders matched with, marched with Dr. King. Um, and Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, I think, you know, made the right reciprocal comments, but not just reciprocal. I think he's a good man. I had dinner with him in Jerusalem a few weeks ago. He is a good man who understands the difference between right and wrong and good and evil. Um, both of our opinions on the previous mayor are well known. Uh, that having been said, the fact that people think that they can walk freely in Times Square with swastikas, and we all believe in freedom of speech, with swastikas spit on police officers. A woman there spat on a police officer supporting Hamas. That's not okay. I would say it's not okay. And what I'm worried about, actually, is not the protesters, by the way. There's always a round of misguided evil people. Misguided is the wrong word, evil people. It's the silent people. The people are afraid to speak up. And we still have a lot of people who are afraid to speak up. A lot afraid to express their opinions as companies. By the way, kudos to Bill Ackman, kudos to Mark Rowan, kudos to all these people who've really stood up and said things, but there's a lot of silent people out there, and New York is not known for its silence, and so I would expect that nobody should be silent in the face of the DSA and their anti-Semitism, in the face of their support of child killers and rapists, child killers and rapists, that's what the DSA supported, and anti-Semites. Do you address, so do you attribute, because I mean, the DSA's whole self-proclaimed reason to exist is that they are the righteous, moral people who fight racism and discrimination in the system. Um, do you ascribe their behavior towards just actual anti-Semitism, or is there also just this culture on the far left now where people are so desperate to not be canceled in any way and to get likes and retweets and everything else they're willing to basically say anything they think they need to say to sort of stay in the club, kind of regardless of how horrific it actually is. Yeah, so um, there's a set of academics, I believe their name is Blaustein and King, if my memory serves me correctly, who analyzed uh, canton by canton uh, anti-Semitism in, in, I think it was Germany uh, prior to World War II and prior to the Holocaust. And their core conclusion was that the places where anti-Semitism was most violent was were places where you had left-wing uh, cover for anti-Semitism. Um, 
because left-wing cover for anti-Semitism uh, causes people to toe the party line because they don't want to get canceled. They don't want to be not be part of high society or some sort of academic circles or something like that. And so we all immediately recoil at right-wing anti-Semitism, or most people do, most normal people do, because it's so blatant. Um, and by the way, on an individual basis, right-wing anti-Semitism might be more harmful. But on a collective basis, left-wing anti-Semitism disguised as some sort of, you know, political correctness, human rights nonsense, or something else is, is the most pernicious. And as a group, it's the most dangerous because people don't want to be thrown out of those clubs. And so people don't speak up. I think it's atrocious. Anyone who doesn't speak up now in the tech community, in, um, uh, in the financial community, in the legal community, and the good people, you know, they should be held accountable publicly. It's, it's really that simple right now. It's not complicated. And, it's, and it's, a, it's a global problem. It's a global problem of terror. And terror makes people scared. And, you know, these guys who, these, these guys, these savages who publish these, you know, they, they, they walked around with GoPro cameras. I don't know if you've seen any of the GoPro footage. They've released a small amount of it. I've seen, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes of GoPro footage at this point. It's horrific. But they do that. They do that for two reasons. One is to scare you so you don't speak up against them. And the other is to make you numb to human evils. And so, you know, these guys are using social media and media in general, you know, to spread hate, to spread evil. And we cannot be silent about it. We cannot. Nobody can be silent about it. And if you are, you're an accomplice. So why hasn't, I think everyone expects there to be a significant, uh, you know, physical invasion of Israeli troops into Gaza. Why hasn't it happened yet, in your view? Um, one is I don't know. Let's start like that. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, I can hypothesize. I'm not a military strategist. Um, you know, in this day and age when you have a Twitter account, so one day you're like a virologist and the next day you're a military strategist and the next day you're the chair of the Fed. Uh, I try not to be those. Um, so I'm not a military strategist. The, the, the second answer is um, I think it's reasonable to say that this was an intelligence failure, right? Uh Either Israel had signals or didn't have signals or got blinded by it. And if I was a betting man, um, they're trying to gather as much intelligence as they can to protect our troops and do the job as uh, surgically as possible, you know, sparing as much human life as possible. And some civilians will inadvertently be killed. That is inevitable in war. And this is a war. Um, but, you know, they captured a bunch of Hamas terrorists, and I'm sure they are interrogating them to get as much intelligence information as possible and using SIGINT as well. Um, and it's a big military. You know, we call it 400,000 people. They need to get organized, you know, in many, in many military battles, not just in Israel. Uh, many troops are killed by friendly fire. That's caused by confusion in the battlefield. So the more you can kind of get organized and prevent that, the better off you are. You know, and I think also at this point, it's fair to say nobody's surprised anymore. Hamas launched a surprise attack, they're probably ready for us now. So, so getting ready uh, properly is probably the best idea. Uh, I also want to hope and pray that there's a lot of international movement going on right now. You know, the president of the United States is turning up here tomorrow. Uh, president Macron of France is supposed to come here. I I'd like to believe, um, for the sake of the Palestinian people, by the way, and the sake of Israelis, that there is some solution out there where Hamas gets eradicated 
eradicated, reduced to ashes, without having to go in with a ground invasion. Might not be possible, but I'd like to believe it could be. That's that's what the people of Gaza need. The people of Gaza who voted in Hamas, you know, there hasn't been a Jew in the Gaza Strip for almost 20 years, uh, or an Israeli. Uh, they've had their own place and time to build Hong Kong or Singapore of the Middle East. They haven't. Um, it's, it's, uh, I'm hoping again for the, for the people of Gaza, what they deserve is different leadership in an international community that will come with a Marshall plan that cannot happen. So long as there's any Hamas there, because the Europeans, European tax dollars in particular, but not only money from the Gulf and I'm sure some American money has gone into Gaza in the boatloads and Hamas has taken the water pipes and turned them into missiles. They turned, they took the hospitals and turned them into military command centers. They took UNRWA, the education system, and turned it into a death cult. They have to go. And so for the people of Gaza not to grow up, you know, as, as terrorists and to have a better life, that, that needs to happen. So there's been at least some arguments here in the U.S. that Israel should, uh, after invading Gaza, stay and, and try to rebuild Gaza into a different type of society and community. Um, I, I have expressed a lot of hesitation that nation building, from what I've seen over the course of history, really never seems to work. Um, do you think that Israel should both, if it does invade, stay for a long time and try to rebuild Gaza, or is the job to go in, get Hamas, and get out? I, I'm not setting military strategy or political strategy for this. I don't know if Israel should rebuild Gaza. Um, I think Gaza will need to be rebuilt. Um, I'd like Israel to have a hand in it because I think that's part of the job. Um, but the key is who's going to govern Gaza. And I don't have an answer to that question. You know, here's another thing that no one's talking about, so you can. Um, Israel told Gazans to get out of Gaza. Yep. I don't know if you know this, but the Egyptian border is closed. Yeah. They can't leave. You know, the, the Saudis build tent camps for 3 million people for the Hajj uh, every year. Um, there's been millions of displaced Syrians that we managed to build tent camps for. There's millions of displaced Afghanis, etc. There will be displaced Gazans. Um, I'd like to see that border opened up so that the people can get to safety, but it's not being opened up. And at the same time, also, we should point out the Qataris have their hands in this. Look, they're hosting Hamas headquarters there. And, you know, they've wanted to be part of the solution. They're part of the problem, the Qataris. And they need to be called out. But I don't know if you know this. Do you know the U.S. has a, as a, as a military base in Qatar? I don't know how there's not a senator. I assume you have politicians who listen to your podcast also. Mm -hmm. yep. I don't know how there's not a senator and congressman calling for removing the U.S. Uh, military base from Qatar. It's not clear to me. These are supporters of terrorists and, and rapists and baby murderers. And I don't think any senator or congressman of conscience would want to let that go. So, you know, there is a complex puzzle that, that needs to be figured out. I, I just like the civilians to get out of there first and then we can finish off Hamas and then and then have a conversation about how to rebuild. But we need to start thinking about that rebuild now. And it's probably going to be some sort of international effort. But again, the key is the governance. So Israel was near a peace accord with Saudi Arabia uh, when October 7th happened. I think a lot of people believe October 7th happened in, in part to try to disrupt that. Um, how likely is that peace accord in your view? How important is it still? So uh, MBS even went so far as to announce on television that we're very close. 
So imagine all the pieces are there. I, for what it's worth, um, I think it's possible that a trigger for the attack was the peace deal with the Saudis. You don't plan an attack like this in two weeks. Right. You know, this has been sitting in somebody's drawer ready to pull out for, for a year, probably. And so this was planned. And this was not a political move. This was pure, unadulterated savagery. Raping. When the, when, when the military handbook says, rape the people, kill the babies, that's not a political argument. That's just terror and savagery. That's what that is. And it needs to be said. My guess is that the Saudis don't like Hamas any more than we do. You know, they have their own problem with uh, extreme Islam. Um, my guess is the Emiratis don't like Hamas any better than we do. Um, they have their own problems with it. And I'm hopeful that when we get rid of Hamas, um, and if we can make it go as fast as possible, I'm very hopeful that the Saudis want to get back to this. Um, by the way, there's tricky geopolitics in this, right? Because people have forgotten geography. Geography is not well taught in America. But uh, there's there's this proposed rail system that will go from Saudi across Israel and into the Mediterranean. Let's so call it Indonesia, India, Saudi, Emirati, Israel corridor, right out to the Mediterranean. That makes the Suez Canal less profitable. And uh, Egypt has a lot of economic interest in the Suez Canal. So, you know, this is complicated geopolitics. And so we, we need to figure this out properly um, and, and get after it properly. And uh, But Hamas, irrespective of this, needs to go for the Saudi's sake, for the Emirati's sake, for the region's sake, for Israel's sake, so that radical Islam, which is not a religion, it's just a terror movement, doesn't rear its head, whether it's ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, it's all the same radical terror. So you have a, a unity government formed in Israel right now, thank God. An emergency uh, government. An emergency government. But the um, once the war is over, whatever that means, I don't even think, I, I'm not sure anyone knows the, actually what that means right now, but once it's over, um, based on everything that's happened, based on public opinion, everything that you're seeing, where do you think Israeli politics goes from here? You've heard this from me in the past. I, I have a very, very strong belief in civic society in Israel. Yep. And in general, I think the 21st century is all about resilient civic societies and civilians taking responsibility. The Israeli government failed its people. It failed its social contract with the people, period, full stop. The first job of a government and its contract with the people is to protect them, and they have failed. Um, not only that, many of the response systems failed as well. So. All the activity I tell you about from the people in the hotels, by the way, to the reservists jumping into uh, duty in, in the military, to um, the, the humanitarian aid is all being done by civilian organizations. It's incredible. It is inspiring. It's can't not believe how quickly people got organized. And by the way, they built tech, the tech communities built tech systems to manage this and scale it up and online and logistics houses and warehouses and troop distributions and people volunteering their cars for everything. It's incredible. It is the single most inspiring thing I've seen probably in my 52 years of my life. Incredible. But it also shows the following, something I pointed out in my books before, and you and I have talked about it, government operating systems, and it's not just Israel's, is at best the Pony Express and at worst it's Windows 95. And why do I say at worst it's Windows 95? It's because Windows 95 makes you believe you have technology solutions when you really don't. But it's really the Pony Express. Civilian operating systems is AI and iOS and Android and it moves fast and WhatsApp, as the case may be. And the people are just more capable. And so 
I think what we're in the process of seeing right now is the emergence of Israel 2.0. Israel 2.0 is an incredibly resilient civic society um, that is going probably to have to come to terms with its political leadership. And my guess is that a large percentage of the current political leadership is finished. They may not know it yet. Um, I've heard people talk about that all 120 need to go, plus 1,000 people at the top of the government offices. Um, I've heard people say 120 people, meaning the members of Knesset, that's how many members of parliament there are, need to go. And um, the other thing that's quite stunning, I won't surprise you, is since you're an old political hand, is almost nobody's taken responsibility and said, hey, I'm responsible, I failed. You've had this, I think, now from the head of the Secret Service here. You've had this from the finance minister who said it. You've had this from uh, the sports minister, not that that matters terribly much, but uh, sports and culture minister. Prime Minister hasn't stood up and said, I got this. You know, this is on me yet. And um, and so my guess is you're going to see wholesale political change here, and it's going to be driven by the citizenry. You need to also remember that this is on the back of um, 10 months of political arguments in Israel about the justice reform, which is obviously dead. Um, but what's incredible is, is that in this time of, of uh, sorrow and resilience, people have, everyone has come together. I mean, everyone has come together and everyone thinks the government's doing a lousy job. Yeah. I haven't run into one person who thinks government's doing a good job, not one. So you mentioned the tech sector mobilizing to deal with the civilian response to, to the war and the attacks. Um, you're the, you know, one of the top VCs in Israel and you invest, you know, only in Israeli companies. Um, what are kind of Israeli startups doing right now? I would imagine that just given the typical age of the workforce at most startups, a lot of people are probably in, in the age where they're still reservists. Um, is it business as usual or has everything shifted just to dealing with the recovery effort? How's it working? So it's a mixed bag. Um, but I'll quote Josh Koppelman in the first round, you know, morals are more important than metrics right now. And I think everyone feels this. And, you know, the survival of the state of Israel can't lead the Jewish people. You know, I'm, I didn't mention it before, but you mentioned what's going on in New York. I'm often worried about, you know, Jewish people and people of conscience in New York, because here at least I know that someone's protecting us. Uh, I'm less sure about that in Toronto, for example. New York's better. I'm not sure about that in Toronto or San Francisco, one of those other places, uh, or London for sure. Um, we're going back to the, the tech team. So it's a real mixed bag. Uh, I have companies where, you know, 60% of the employees have been called up to reserve duty. They're obviously not functioning that great right now. I have other companies, by the way, where nobody's been called up, either because there were immigrants who came here after the age of military service, a lot of the people there, or some of the tech units where they're kind of just outdated, uh, or pilots. I think pilots finished flying here at 42, uh, so they're in that age range, and uh, on and on. And so you have a mixed bag. You have some companies operating unabated. You have some companies operating um, missing, call it 10 to 15% of the workforce, which in Israel... Uh, it's not the end of the world. People know how to deal with that. This is, you know, everyone fills in for each other. Um, and there's, by the way, been incredible support by the tech community in the United States in particular, but across the world, people offering to fill in if they can and help out. Just incredible, incredible outreach. And obviously the CEOs of, of uh, Google and, and, and Amazon and, and Microsoft. And so uh, there's some of that. And there's some companies that are just, you know, stopped. I, I, one of my entrepreneurs called me yesterday and said, Hey, where are you? I said, I'm finishing paying a condolence call in the, in the north. He said, can you stop by on the way? He's lost 6% of his workforce, the guy. And uh, so as he functioning, he's functioning. He's delivering the employees he has. He's keeping the lights on. And then we'll have to see what happens. And the other thing is that the school system's closed. 
And so, you know, like COVID, uh, you've got kids at home. So you've got a war, you've got a lot of husbands gone and some wives. Um, you got the kids home. And so, you know, how you juggle all that is is tricky. What I'm hopeful about, Israel's been through a couple of these before, um, where the snapback, has been, the economic snapbacks were really quick, Israelis catch up quick. Um, I'm hopeful that we'll get into some routine about this over the next over the next week or two and get back uh, to business. What, what I'll add also is, and I've written this uh, too, is uh, um, you're going to want to invest your money in a place with the most resilient civilians. And not only that, the technology being built at a civic level right now here is stunning. You cannot believe what these guys have built in a week and a half, including my partner, Eden, by the way, who's become a full-time coder and product manager for the last 10 days. Um, what these guys have built, and by the way, how they've pushed systems, you know, we're pushing Zapier on a bunch of things right now uh, to really push their limits on mission critical systems. It's unbelievable what they've built. It is like the, you want to work with these are the greatest product and engineering people on the planet to stress test things on. And you just I'm, I'm excited about what will come after, uh, just as I'm apprehensive a little bit about what might come in the short term. But it's like incredible. This is going to be the place to invest on this planet uh, after this war is over. So or maybe the, during it, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So I, the response from the VC community overall, I think, has been been pretty encouraging. I don't know if even this crossed your radar, but Web Summit, which is a you know a big annual tech event, um, the CEO of Web Summit made some very pro Hamas comments, and lots of funds uh, immediately pulled out of the event and refused to appear. So I I think we've seen you know we've seen a, a lot of VCs, including us, sign various you know letters supporting Israel and things like that. But what are some other tangible ways that whether you're in tech or just listen to this podcast and, and care um, that they can help? So I would say three things. One is, you know, support the communities and the humanitarian efforts. Um, the communities need to be rebuilt. Uh, and the humanitarian efforts, there's, there's, I think now, I think it's 18 or 20,000 displaced people out of their homes. Um, we need help and they need to stay together as communities, et cetera. So not only contributing to them, but thinking if there's ways that whatever investments you made or companies you have can be helpful to them, I think I think is one uh, very, very important uh, way. Um, the second thing I think is, and I know this is going to sound nuts to you, um, people decide to turn up here during this war and crisis, show us support, it would matter. Now, I'm not expecting people who want to necessarily risk their lives, but here I am, I'm sitting in my office in Tel Aviv right now, uh, coming to you on the podcast, you know, we're, we're well organized around this. Uh, President Biden's coming, Macron is coming. I think if there was a group of venture capitalists, investors and and entrepreneurs, whoever it was who turned up, I think you'll be inspired to see what's going on here. I promise to give you the personal tour. Um, and I think people would be blown away uh, by it. And then I think the last thing is like, let's think about what are the big, uh, big ideas? What are the big ideas we have for when this over? Um, that uses technology uh, for good. You know, uh, in my in my book, the Tree of Life and Prosperity, on the on the portion of Noah, which we read this week, Noah and the Flood and the Ark, the topic of the piece that I wrote on Noah is about dual use technology. If you have technology, it can be used for good and can be used for bad. Um, chemistry was one of them. You know, wine. Noah wine is used to gladden the heart and you also get fall into a drunken stupor and, and, and get castrated by your son or abused by your son as, as happened in Noah's case. Um, and dual use technology. And I, I think there's going to be an incredible opportunity around dual use technology use for good that will come in collaboration between uh, Western countries and Israel 
uh, and hopefully the Emiratis and and the Saudis as well over time. And you know, in the India, in India, and Indonesia, there's going to become an axis of good for good use of technology. And Hamas obviously has used a lot of the technologies developed over the last 20 years, like social media, GoPro cameras for for horrific evil. But we need to create an axis of good for investing in technologies, for pushing the envelope on technologies, dual use technologies to be used by good guys uh, and for good going forward. And I think that's something you can you can start to put some, you know, some brain power to. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure, you know, smartest minds in, in, the, in the world are in tech and VC. So so let's do that. Um, and no, I'll add one other thing. Yeah, let's say what was the third? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Which is, you know, there's a battle for campuses right now and an opportunity finally. So all this woke nonsense has been going on over the last, I don't know how many years in the Ivy Leagues in particular. There's a chance to change the narrative about who, what's good, what's righteous, what are real Western liberal values, and what's not. And so I'd encourage you and everyone listening who's a graduate of the Ivy Leagues or any of these other influential colleges to stand up, call the university presidents, uh, tell them that they need to be unequivocal about good and evil. And I'd stand up and tell the story, challenge the student bodies there to reconsider their views of the last 15, 20 years that emerged on these college campuses and all these ridiculous new departments that they've created. Um, we got a chance to turn the tide on what's really gone wrong in America over the last 20 years. And I think we should take this on now as, as a challenge. Yeah. Um, Michael, thank you and God bless. How, how can people follow your updates on, on the situation there? I've been, I've been writing at, uh, on Twitter at, at Mike Eisenberg, uh, at sign M-I-K-E-E-I-S-E-N-B-E-R-G. And that, that's where you'll see most of it right now. That's what I, that's what I have time to do right now. I've been that's, running at, around. That's how I've been following you. So, uh, yeah. so I, I definitely you know, recommend you know, Tyler, it. I, I, one thing on a personal note, you, you know me pretty well. Um, so I'm Sabbath observant. Um, but since uh, whatever time it was, 9 or 10 a.m. On, on Saturday morning, Sabbath morning, I think it's 10 days ago now. Yeah. When I turned on my phone because I realized there was a crisis going on and we had to go help people, I, I got involved with a friend of mine in, in coordinating some rescue efforts in the South. Um, I haven't had a Sabbath. I, I, I drove on this last Sabbath to Tel Aviv to help some, to help out with something um, because human life you know, uh, pushes aside the Sabbath. And what's really interesting is your whole time scale gets thrown off. I'm used to keeping Sabbath for my whole life. Your whole time scale. I feel like I haven't had... Uh, um, like one long day now for 10 days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, one long day. So what I want to thank you for is talking to you. Really, I'm saying this in all seriousness is, is an island of normalcy, is an island of, of, of connection um, that I haven't had in, in, I'm not sure exactly how long because it feels like one long day. I just want to thank you from the bottom oh, of my heart. Of course. It. It, it really matters. So we're thank you. Grateful. I was, I was actually a little afraid. I was sort of torn between really wanting you to come on to say everything you just said and afraid of kind of bothering you because I know that you're sort of in the middle of so much of this. So uh, I'm glad that we asked and, and even more glad that you said yes. Yeah, thank you for it. All right, Michael, thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.